This hearing is called to order. Uh, I want to start out by thanking all of our witnesses for taking the time and traveling here and preparing some thoughtful testimony. Um, I also want to offer my condolences to all of those who knew, knew Boris Nepsov, considered him a friend and comrade. Um, a real tragedy would happen a day, I think, after we uh, noticed this hearing. Uh, it certainly was not uh, one of the things I wanted to uh, talk about, uh, certainly nothing we contemplated. Uh, the purpose of this hearing is, is really to lay out a reality. Uh, it's to tell a story. And the story that needs to be told is, is what has become of Russia since Vladimir Putin has come to power. I'm not going to tell the story. These gentlemen are going to be telling the story. But unless we understand the reality, unless we're willing to face the reality, unless we're willing to grapple with the reality, Vladimir Putin will continue his aggression, and that will destabilize not only Eastern Europe, it will destabilize the entire efforts of, of, of all those who want to seek peace and prosperity in the world. Um, what we have done is we do have a couple photographs that I want to highlight. And starting to my right is a picture of Boris Nemtsov, a very courageous man that I had the privilege of meeting in my office, uh, a man who, who brought to my office a, a longer list of people that needed to be added to the Magnitsky list. Unfortunately, the next picture, right behind Senator Gardner, is a picture of Boris Nepsov having been assassinated with the Kremlin in the background. Now, that, that would be somewhat similar to, an analogy would be, an assassination carried out on Constitution Avenue with the Capitol in the background. In, in, in my written opening statement, which I would ask to be entered in the record, we've laid out a timeline that really starts with the fall of the Berlin Wall and then traces through the history, but in particular I want people to pay attention to the history following the ascension of Boris, or of uh, uh, Mr. Putin to power in Russia. And I think probably the most powerful part of that timeline are the 29 assassinations of political figures. 29 assassinations and murders that have never been adequately solved. And I think people need to really contemplate that. Uh, next picture, and we don't have the quote on there. Do we have the quote somewhere? This picture, there was a quote talking about uh, the number of Russian troops. This is a Ukraine, Ukrainian, no, this is actually a Ukrainian rebel talking about the number of Russian troops that he was thankful for had entered eastern Ukraine. Next picture is, is one of tragedy. As Malaysian flight number MH17 was shot down on the sky on July 17th of 2014, 298 innocent civilians were murdered. This shows a picture of that. And then we have scenes of the devastation in eastern Ukraine. So that shows a little pictorial history of the results of Vladimir Putin's aggression. And that's the story that needs to be told. That's the reality that needs to be faced. So again, I, I want to thank the witnesses. And I turn it over to uh, Senator Shaheen for her opening comments.
Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your focus and work to bring this hearing together today. Um, I want to echo your comments about the tragic killing of Boris Nemtsov. He was a tireless voice for all Russians and a firm believer in a bright future for the country. And even as we focus here on the Russian Federation's outward aggression, clearly we can't ignore the repression that's happening inside Russia. Um, in the interest of time, I will submit my full statement for the record and just want to end by welcoming all of our witnesses here today. And it's nice to have former President Saakashvili back um, in, uh, with this committee today. And uh, I look forward to hearing what all of you have to say and your thoughts about what more we can be doing to support the people of Ukraine. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Shaheen. We do have a vote that's going to be called, and I, I believe the uh, What's going to happen in that vote is we're going to be sitting in our chairs. So what we'll do is when that vote is called, we all will leave. We'll uh, put this hearing to recess and we'll come back because I, I don't want anybody to miss the testimony. But we will start off with uh, President Shakasvili, former president of Georgia. He was the leader of Georgia from 2004 to 2013. Recently, he was appointed by Ukrainian President Poroshenko to serve as chairman of the International Advisory Council on Reforms of the President of Ukraine. Uh, President Shaksvili. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Senator Gardner, for this wonderful initiative. Um, I want to thank you, the committee and subcommittee, uh, for the in invitation. Uh, perhaps it is a little un unorthodox to find a former uh, president uh, representing the interests of another nation before the United Nations Senate. But I think the distinguished members of this committee understand why I have gone from being president of one nation for, to helping the president of another. Ukraine and Georgia are on front lines of a fight that may seem far away, but it's the very much the fight that the American people and certainly U.S. Congress understands more than anybody else in the world. This is not fight about territory, about railway junctures, this or that town. This is fight about principles, ideals, way of life. This is fight whether we can escape from this curse of Soviet corrupt, chronic, uh, inefficient societies to being efficient democracies based on rule of law. Ukraine, and here is the story of a Budapest memorandum, which I have to remind the members of the committee. Ukraine gave up 1,800 warheads, one third of the Soviet nuclear arsenal to help secure peace in post-Cold War Europe. That was on the insistence of the United States. The United States, among other big powers, were guarantors of Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty and their statehood based on, the, uh, based on the Ukraine giving up the weapons. Even more than that, on insistence of this country and other great powers, Ukraine has diminished its defense capabilities from having almost 1 million people serving in the military to uh, down to 120,000. Um, Ukraine has utilized uh, the 120,000 tons of ammunition and mines. Um, they've uh, uh, incapacitated 6,000 tanks for the last decades, and that was the time when they were complying with their, all their treaty obligations uh, while Russia was building up their military potential and propping up their muscles. And now here we are. Ukraine has given all this up, hoping that they will be guaranteed peaceful future. Certainly they were not willing to attack or planning to attack anybody. And 
instead of giving up several thousand nuclear warheads, they are asking basically for 7,000 anti-tank missiles to defend themselves and to check Russian tanks advancing deep into their territory, as well as some other weapons. The, and this is certainly supporting Ukraine at this moment means, first of all, besides all the other support, also giving them means to defend that democracy. And, in order, and to support them being, build a viable, strong Ukrainian democracy. And I think it's now imperative of the US security and the world security. The road markers of Putin's reign are the gravestones of his critics and opponents. Every marker we can think of in this timeline is about increasing control of Russia, of the Russian-speaking world. In September 1999, as director of FSB, Putin sent troops into Chechnya. Three months later, he was acting president of Russia. In August 2008, he invaded my country, Georgia. Three months later, the Constitution has changed to assure that when Putin returned to the presidency, it would be a six-year term. Putin's military excursions are always the prelude to the centralization of his personal power. This has made Russia more unpredictable and Europe and the United States less secure. One year ago, as the corrupt regime of Yanukovych fell, Russian forces moved into Crimea, then East Ukraine, then there was downing of passenger as jet, as you rightly pointed, pointed out, Senator. Uh, in September last year, President Poroshenko addressed the joint session of the Congress, and we are very grateful for this opportunity. And he also asked to Ukraine that Ukraine requires defensive assistance, because if not given that, Russia will continue to establish facts on the ground that will give them a, a str stronger position in the kabuki of future negotiations and basically, basically in the killing of Ukraine democracy. I think what Russia is after is uh, seizing the whole southern flank of Ukraine, seizing most of the east, and then going after the government in Kiev and killing the very idea of Ukraine democracy. After the war in 2008, a de facto ban on arms sales to Georgia was in place. As then opponents saying that providing Ukraine with little weapons will provoke Russia to escalate this conflict. But this appeasement ignores that Putin's aim is to destabilize Ukrainian democracy. Adequate forces can stop aggression. In 1980s, shoulder-shoulder fired Stinger missiles raised the cost of the Soviets in Afghanistan. That was the most decisive factor in the eventual defeat of the Soviet army. That's why it's very important that while there is a, also Europeans who are doing the negotiations, the United States should do the, take the lead, empowering regional actors like Poland and joining with forces with supportive nations like the UK and the Bolts to create a coalition to help to arm and train the Ukrainian army. Ukraine must reform. I have focused on that case for arming Ukraine because without this, there won't be a country to rebuild. But its success will equally be determined by fighting corruption, bringing the economy out of shadows, increasing revenues to the state budget, and delivering better lives to the people of Ukraine. American support of all these efforts for the Ukraine economy is critical, but time is short, and underneath the deception and deformation war, the Russian plan is clear. They will seize more of the Ukraine, as I said, they will depose the government in Kiev, if not checked in time. Only the swift and immediate action of the U.S. government to train and equip the Ukrainians can stop Putin's strategy to deconstruct the transatlantic architecture, to deconstruct the post-Cold War order. America and the free world has won Second World War, more, and won, Americans won the First World War, and they won the Cold War. What we are seeing is a dramatic situation when all these gains might be reversed. 
Georgia is a small country, but when we were invaded in 2008, after the failed deal with the Europeans, that was the United, it took the United States and also many members of this very Congress to stop them, also by menacing to take, to, to, by starting the humanitarian military operation. We didn't involve sending US boots on the ground, but certainly involved sending strong signals to the Russians that they should stop. This war is much more complex than just war on the ground. This is a propaganda war. It is about controlling minds. And it, this war, we have yet to begin to fight back to empower the Russian people to look at their own country and their own region and to prevent, prevent the encroachment of the Russian narrative into our politics and media. It was not just NATO army that stopped the spread of communism. It was a collection of strong ideals with an army standing behind it. America, the origin of many of these ideals, was always further away from the front and thus more able to resist the seeming appeal of realist moral compromise. The same must be true today. A democratic, secure Ukraine is the last nation between the revanchist Russia and America and overall the free world. Thank you, Senator, for hearing my testimony. Thank you, Mr. President. Do we have time? Okay. Uh, we will recess this point in time and hopefully be back in about 10 to 15 minutes. So, again, I apologize for that, but again, this is an important, important hearing and we're looking forward to your testimony. Thank you. This uh, hearing stands in recess. This hearing is called back to order. Our, our next witness will be Mr. Gary Kasparov. He is the chairman of the International Council on the Human Rights Foundation. Mr. Kasparov is a Russian pro-democracy leader, global human rights activist, author, and former world chess champion. Mr. Kasparov. My thanks to the subcommittee and to Senator Johnson for inviting me here today. It has been a very difficult last few days mourning the brutal murder of my longtime friend and colleague Boris Nemtsov in front of the Kremlin last Friday night, while also wanting to honor his memory and his fight by pressing the case for ending the regime of Vladimir Putin in Russia. I've learned from painful experience that these first days after an atrocity are very important because people outside of Russia quickly forget and move on. Boris was an outspoken critic of a police state that has no tolerance for critics. His imposing presence regularly embarrassed an increasingly totalitarian dictatorship that could not permit even the smallest amount of truth to leak out. His latest report was to be on the presence of Russian troops in Ukraine, fighting Putin's war against a fragile democratic state in Europe. Boris also actively promoted the Magnitsky Act, a piece of rare bipartisan 2012 legislation that brought sanctions against Russian officials for another brutal murder, that of anti-corruption attorney Sergei Magnitsky in 2009. Boris Nemtsov was killed because he could be killed. Putin and his elites believe that after 15 years in power, there's, there's nothing they cannot do, no line they cannot cross. Their sense of impunity, combined with the atmosphere of hatred and violence Putin's propaganda has created in Russia, is a lethal combination. Boris was not the first victim of this deadly mix. Georgia, Ukraine, and the stability of the modern world order is also under attack. Putin must justify his grip on power somehow. With his oil and gas-based economy failing, he's following the path of so many dictators before him. Propaganda, division, and war. Enemies are needed so that Putin may protect Russians from them. Ukraine was always a tempting target. And recent leaks 
have shown that an invasion plan existed even before the fall of Putin's puppet, Viktor Yanukovych. Inside Russia, independent journalists and opposition activists are portrayed as dangerous national traitors in language lifted directly from the Nazis. Of course, I feel deeply the loss of my friend Boris Nemtsov and the prosecution of others who dare to speak against Putin. But Ukraine and what it illustrates about Putin and his regime that are most, more consequent to today's hearing. Since Putin took power in 2000, one Western administration after another declined to confront him on human rights at home or even his increasing belligerence abroad. The timeline of Russian repression circulated here today does an excellent job of listing many of the worst moments of Putin's crackdown. But there could also be a parallel timeline of all the meetings, deals, and smiling photo ops the leaders of the free world took with Putin while these atrocities were taking place. The Western engagement policy that should have been abandoned as soon as Putin showed his true colors over a decade ago was continued at every turn, which emboldened Putin and delegitimized our opposition movement. Putin rebuilt a police state in Russia in full view of the outside world, and now he is confident enough of his power to attempt to export that police state abroad to Georgia, to Ukraine, to Moldova, where next? He's testing NATO now and he will test it further. Putin also provides a role model for the rest of the world, world's dictators and thugs by proudly defying the superior forces of the free world. From Iran to Syria to Venezuela, Putin's Russia provides both material support and what I would call amoral support. Putin is not going away on his own. Ukraine is only his latest target. Ukraine must be defended, supported, and armed now. It may seem far away to you, but it's a front line of a war the United States and the rest of the free world is fighting whether it admits it or not. Sanctions are important, but it over six months ago that they were not enough to deter Putin, and he must be deterred. Stop treating Putin like an any other leader who can be negotiated with in good faith. Stop legitimizing his brutal regime at the expense of the Russian people. The opposition movement Boris and I believed in, and that Boris died for, should also be openly supported, the way the West championed the Soviet dissidents. Let the people of Russia know that they have allies abroad, the way Ronald Reagan told us, all of us, behind the Iron Curtain, that he knew it was our leaders, not us, who were his enemies. Contrary to the widely circulated official polls, Putin does not enjoy broad public support in Russia as was proven by hundreds of thousands of people mourning Boris in the streets of Moscow. If you are truly popular, you can allow free media and free elections, and your critics are not gunned down in the streets. Putin's oligarch supporters must be forced to choose between giving him up and a doomed isolation. They cannot be allowed to continue to live like Trump and rule like Stalin. The people of Russia want to be free, but defeating a globalized and energy-rich, heavily militarized dictatorship that has the tacit support of the free world is too much to ask. You cannot negotiate with cancer. Like a cancer, Putin and his elites must be cut out. He must be isolated and removed. <coughs> For only when Putin is gone can Russia be free, strong, and independent country Boris himself always dreamed it could be. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kasparov. Our next witness is Dr. Stephen Blank. He is a senior fellow for Russia at the American Foreign Policy Council. He's an internationally known expert on Russia and the former Soviet Union, 
and is the author of over 1,000 publications. Dr. Blank. It is a great, Senator Johnson, it is a great honor to testify before your subcommittee with this exceptionally distinguished group of witnesses. Because my written statement deals with purely military issues, in my oral remarks, I wish to talk about the broader strategic issues involved. Russia's invasion and occupation of Ukraine represent the greatest threat to European security in a generation, the most naked case of aggression since Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, and arguably the most dangerous threat to international security in order today. It is the fruit of a long-developed plan whose origins can be traced back to 2005. Russia has several objectives here. Many have already noticed that in keeping with the rhythms of Russian history, there is the belief that a little short victorious war can buttress the regime at home around the program of Russian imperialism and state nationalism. Further, it is an axiom of Russian foreign policy that none of the post-Soviet states, including those of Eastern Europe, really possess genuine sovereignty and territorial integrity. Therefore, the treaties guaranteeing that sovereignty and territorial integrity are merely scraps of paper. This sentiment applies with particular force to Ukraine, for it is clearly inconceivable to the Russian elite that Ukraine can follow a different trajectory than does Russia. Moreover, a Ukraine that looks westward is the greatest possible threat to the security of Putin's regime because it will infect Russia with the democratic virus. Indeed, the entire legitimacy of any Russian state is bound up with its being the true heir of Kievan Rus. If Ukraine rebels against or rejects Russia's trajectory, then the entire legitimacy of the Russian state is called into question. This is especially the case because Putin and his team believe that empire is the only acceptable form of a Russian state and Russia must therefore be an empire if his autocracy and kleptocracy are to be preserved. For all these reasons, a democratic revolution in Ukraine is anathema to Moscow and a pretext for an invasion. Operationally, Moscow still intends to seize Mariupol, establish a land bridge to Crimea, and if it could do so, establish as well a land bridge all the way to Moldova. Plans for this were already laid a year ago. Beyond destroying any possibility of an independent Ukraine, Moscow intends to overthrow the entire post-Cold War settlement of 1989 to 91 in Europe and globally, and to do so by systematically employing the synchronized instruments of pressure we now know as so-called hybrid warfare. These policies are and were predictable to any competent analyst, but unfortunately this administration and too many European governments do not take what happens in Russia seriously enough. Neither do these governments think Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet states are sufficiently important for us to have a real strategy regarding them. This Russia first strategy lies at the root of the continuing and shameful Western failure to understand or grapple with Russia and its aggressions seriously enough or to provide assistance to Ukraine as needed. As administration officials candidly admit, there is, quote, an asymmetry of will, unquote, or of importance whereby Ukraine is supposedly more important to Moscow than it is to us or to European governments, and this inhibits us helping Ukraine as needed. Indeed, as reported on, March, on February 27th by the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. is slow rolling the provision of intelligence to Ukraine. Given the stakes involved for Ukraine, its neighbors and partners, European and international security, this is an unacceptable policy. It undermines the credibility of NATO, of the U.S. and Europe and beyond, and encourages aggression and not only by Putin, and not only by Europe. Therefore, not only in Europe. Therefore, the importance of these hearings should be clear to everyone, and I welcome the opportunity to testify before the committee today. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Blank. Our next witness is Mr. Damon Wilson. He is Executive Vice President of the Atlantic Council. His areas of expertise include Central and Eastern Europe, NATO, and the U.S. national security issues. From 2007 to 2009, Mr. Wilson served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for the European Affairs at uh, the National Security Council. Mr. Wilson. Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Shaheen, members of the committee, President Putin today poses a direct threat to American interests and values. His war in Ukraine aims to tear up the post-Cold War order and undermine American credibility. If we fail to stop Putin in Ukraine, we will face a series of conflicts and crises in the months and years to come. At best, Putin may consolidate his autocratic grip at home and subjugate 75 million people in Europe's east to a fate determined in Moscow. At worst, an emboldened Putin may be tempted to challenge a NATO ally directly. The choice we face, however, is not between fighting Russia or doing nothing. Rather, I believe doing nothing may lead to our fighting Russia. In this context, I'd like to make five points. This crisis began long before Crimea. Indeed, Russia's annexation of Crimea was the natural outcome of a clear, consistent policy dating back years. I detailed this record in my full testimony. Second, Putin will not stop until he encounters serious pushback. Third, only the United States can galvanize Europe and the international community around an effective strategy to deter Putin for the long term. Fourth, any strategy should urgently and decisively back Ukraine, as well as other vulnerable states, with significant economic and military assistance in the short term, while keeping the door open to the European Union or NATO. And fifth, we should neither abandon the Russian people nor the vision that a democratic Russia one day can find its peaceful place within a Europe whole and free. Putin's strategy has been to use this crisis to consolidate his own hold at home through greater repression of civil society and independent media, even as he fuels nationalist fervor. He has created an environment of fear and intimidation fostering the circumstances that led to the assassination of Boris Nimtsov. Putin, of course, is also seeking to dominate his neighbors, to drain them of resources to fuel his kleptocracy, and to restore a sense of Russia's greatness and the only way a bully knows. He aims to prevent his neighbors from joining either NATO or the EU, achieving this through coercion when possible and by dismemberment and occupation when necessary. Ultimately, Putin knows that the best check on his power is a united transatlantic community. Hence, he has sought to divide Europe, undermining the resolve for sustained sanctions. But the most tempting objective for Putin is to call into question the credibility of NATO's Article 5 mutual defense commitment as doing so would effectively end NATO. A Russian move against an ally such as a Baltic state cannot be ruled out. Putin has demonstrated time and again that if he senses an opportunity to act, he will, convinced that the West lacks the will or the ability to take decisive action. That's why today's situation is dangerous. We've seen repeatedly that Putin's objectives expand with success and contract with failure. This means that the best determinant of his action is Western action. There's a tendency, however, to argue that the Europeans should take the lead on Ukraine. After all, we have our hands full on ISIS and other global responsibilities. But the Ukraine crisis is a Russia crisis, and Russia is too big, too strong, and too scary for Europe to resolve this without us. Without U.S. leadership, Europe may feel forced to accommodate a revanchist Russia, and we've seen throughout history this is a dangerous formula. 
The United States has the ability to rally its allies and international partners around a comprehensive strategy that not only deters Putin's aggression, but avoids an unstable gray zone in Europe's east. To do so, we should begin by articulating what we want to achieve. We should more decisively increase the cost to Russia, including by enacting sectoral sanctions and targeting Gazprom and Putin directly. The most effective response is Ukraine succeeding and becoming a modern European state. And yet Western assistance to date is modest. There's no government-wide concerted effort to assist Ukraine. There's no response commensurate with how we reacted to support campaigns against Ebola or ISIS. The United States is uniquely positioned to assist Ukraine to defend itself and to raise the cost of further Russian military action against Ukraine. Putin, after all, has lied to his own people about Russians' forces fighting in Ukraine. But by reassuring Putin that we will either not provide or greatly constrain our military and intelligence assistance, we signal to the Kremlin what Russia can get away with. Any assistance package should therefore be substantial, including anti-armor missiles, as well as intelligence support. Such a U.S. decision could unlock lethal military assistance from many of our allies. The U.S. Congress could also endorse a more substantial military presence along NATO's eastern flank, call for a halt to any further U.S. force withdrawals from Europe, and order a review of the U.S. force posture. Such a package could be designed to leverage U.S. commitments to European security to secure greater European commitments to defense investment. We should respond to aggression in Europe's east by consolidating Europe's south. This would mean inviting Montenegro to join NATO and intensifying efforts to build U.S. strategic partnerships with Serbia and Cyprus. We should harness America's energy prowess to increase global supply while supporting European efforts to create a European energy union that includes Ukraine. And we should be explicit that our intention to negotiate a transatlantic trade and investment partnership is open to Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia. As long as either KGB veterans retain their grip on the Kremlin or the nations in between NATO and Russia remain trapped in an insecure gray zone, we will face continued challenges and conflict. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Our, our final witness is the Honorable Stephen Pfeiffer. Am I pronouncing that correct? Yes, sir. Good. Uh, Mr. Pfeiffer is the senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000. He is a retired Foreign Service officer with over 25 years at the State Department, focused on U.S. relations with the former Soviet Union in Europe. Mr. Pfeiffer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Senator Shaheen, Senator Gardner, uh, thank you for the opportunity to testify today on Russia's aggression against Ukraine and the West's policy response. With your permission, I will submit a written statement for the record and summarize it now. What began as an internal Ukrainian political dispute became a conflict between Russia and Ukraine in early 2014. Moscow has used military force to seize Crimea, supported armed separatists, and sent regular Russian army units into eastern Ukraine. After a September ceasefire agreement failed, a second ceasefire, referred to as Minsk II, was agreed in February. That agreement is fragile at best. Its implementation will prove difficult. Driving Russia's aggression has been a mix of geopolitical and domestic political considerations, including fear that the Maidan demonstrations in Ukraine could provide a model that the Russian people might emulate. The Kremlin's goal appears to be to destabilize the Ukrainian government and make it harder for Kyiv to address its urgent economic reform agenda and draw closer to the European Union. The West has responded with sanctions. While having a major impact on the Russian economy, the sanctions have not yet achieved their political goal to affect a change in the Kremlin's policy toward Ukraine. 
Beyond Ukraine, the United States and Europe face a broader Russia problem. Moscow has operated its military forces in a provocative manner and asserts a right to protect ethnic, ethnic Russians and Russian speakers wherever they are located and whatever their citizenship. That could pose a threat to other states in the region, including Estonia and Latvia, both members of NATO. In response, the United States and West should pursue a multi-pronged strategy to deal with Russia's violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and Moscow's generally more confrontational approach. That strategy should have five vectors. First, NATO should bolster its ability to deter Russian threats to the alliance's members, particularly in the Baltic region. This entails enhancing NATO conventional force capabilities, including capabilities to deal with the hybrid war techniques that Russia has used in Ukraine. Second, the West should support Ukraine, including through provision of substantial financial assistance if Kyiv proceeds with serious economic reforms. If the Minsk II ceasefire by some chance holds and other terms of the agreement are implemented, but the Ukrainian economy collapses, that will hardly represent a success for Western policy. Third, the West should maintain sanctions on Russia until Moscow demonstrates a full commitment to a negotiated settlement in eastern Ukraine and takes demonstrable and substantive measures to implement that settlement. Should Russia not do so, or should separatist and Russian forces resume military operations, the United States and European Union should rapidly move to impose additional sanctions. It is important to make clear to Russia that its egregious behavior will have significant costs so that the Kremlin does not come to believe it can pursue hybrid warfare elsewhere at a tolerable price. Fourth, the United States should make preparations to provide increased military assistance to Ukraine, including defensive arms, particularly light anti-armor weapons. Provision of that assistance should, be, should proceed if the separatists or Russians violate the ceasefire or if Moscow fails to implement the full terms of the Minsk II agreement. The assistance would fill gaps in the Ukrainian army's ability to defend Ukraine against attack. The rationale is to enable the Ukrainian army to impose greater costs on the Russian military, to deter Moscow from further fighting, and to encourage it to pursue a peaceful settlement. Some express concern that U.S. provision of defensive arms would lead Russia to escalate, but escalation would carry major risks for Moscow. It would require more overt involvement by the Russian army in eastern Ukraine. That would be more visible internationally, likely triggering additional sanctions, and to the Russian public, from whom the Kremlin has sought to hide the fact that Russian soldiers are fighting and dying in Ukraine. Others worry that providing arms would split U.S.-European unity. There is no evidence to back that. To be sure, Chancellor Merkel says that Germany will not provide arms, but during her visit in Washington on February 9, she did not give President a red light or threatened a breakdown in transatlantic solidarity. And other allies would likely provide Ukraine defensive weapons once the United States began to do so. Fifth, the United States should leave the door open for Russia to change course and help end the conflict, even if expectations of such a change in Moscow's policy should be and are modest at best. Finally, while Ukraine has correctly deferred the issue of Crimea for now, the West should continue to not recognize Russia's illegal annexation of the peninsula. Mr. Chairman, Senator Shaheen, distinguished members of the subcommittee, Russia's actions on Ukraine and its more confrontational approach represent a serious challenge to the United States, Europe, and the West. Dealing with that Russian challenge requires a multi-pronged strategy based on firmness, patience, and solidarity with U.S. allies and friends in Europe. But given the large differences in economic, military, and soft power between the West and Russia, the West should be fully able to meet that challenge. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Ambassador Pfeiffer. Um, 
I'd like to start my questioning with uh, President Shankasvili. You obviously have firsthand experience with Russian aggression. Can you just describe uh, the events of uh, August 2008 and, and what prompted Vladimir Putin to stop advancing into Georgia? <clears throat> yes, Senator. Uh, what happened in 2008 that we were invaded by a full-blown Russian force which involved more than 100,000 uh, ground troops, uh, more than uh, 1,000 armor. Uh, the, we were more overall 200 combat planes on the Russian side took part in the operation uh, against basically what was a very small, small-sized Georgian uh, professional army. And um, in that respect, first we had mediation by uh, exactly the kind of mediation that you see now with President Hollande and Merkel by President Sarkozy. And he came in, we signed the ceasefire agreement, Georgian army withdrew its forces uh, from the contested area, the area, invaded area, and Russia was supposed to withdraw as well. Instead, Russia, after several days, said the situation on the ground has changed, they no longer would abide by the agreement, and started to advance over the capital. And what really had stopped back then was the United States proclaiming military humanitarian operation, moving the mugfall uh, of the Sixth Fleet first to the Georgian ports and putting complaints in Romanian base and putting the air base in Turkey on high military alert. And basically starting to patrol the skies close to Georgia. The other day I was uh, at the office of Senator Kirk who told me that he was back then, I didn't know the story, at the, uh, he was at, on duty in Pentagon. And actually uh, the United States um, had to bring back based on our agreement, because we were the second biggest or first, in the end, the first biggest per capita contributor to operation out of foreign contributors to Iraq and Afghanistan. But at that moment, it was Iraq. But the agreement we had, the standby agreement with the President of the United States, was that we could repatriate our troops. So what happened that the United States the, uh, uh, the United States told, uh, first Russians told the United States to remove the uh, military cargo plane from the tarmac of Tbilisi International Airport. The United States refused to do that, and that was already a very first important signal, because they were told they were going to bomb the Tbilisi International Airport, and we, they didn't want to move American plane. American plane stayed on the tarmac, and that spared, spared us at least that bombing. And second thing, they had to bring back Georgian brigades, and Georgian skies were fully under control of Russian military jets, and they told me that they wouldn't let through the U.S. plane. And then the Pentagon and Senator Kirk told me he called, he called specifically uh, the Russian defense minister and said, we are coming anyway, this is the U.S. plane, and don't you ever dare to touch us. And they came in and they didn't do it. And that was the key moment when after this launching of military humanitarian operations, just a few miles away from our capital, with Vladimir Putin's clearly proclaimed goal to depose democratically elected government of Georgia, just like they have, I think, more or less proclaimed goal to depose government of Ukraine, uh, didn't, they had to stop. And that was a clear sign that stepping up and uh, at, counting on who would blink first, Putin at that moment blinked first. And I have to say, I strictly believe there is no, they will try to depose the uh, government of Ukraine. They will not succeed to do it, but that's clearly their plan. It's not their plan to just hold to those two regions like it was never planned to hold just to the regions of Georgia. They wanted to get rid of Georgian democracy because that was a dangerous precedent. Exactly like having Ukraine succeed, it would be that just very dangerous precedent for Russia. So sometimes, like it took it in Western Berlin, Americans, protected West Berlin even from Stalin and uh, Western allies. And they protected through all the, all the decades of the Cold War. And West Berlin was a showcase of what democracy looks like.
should look like. And that's really convinced all of us. I mean, we, we, uh, we didn't need much of conviction, but it convinced overall uh, the uh, subdued nations that they had to revolt against the communist system. Exactly the same type for today's world, like Georgia was in 2008, I think Ukraine is West Berlin of today, you, and it's much more protectable than the West Berlin ever was. And even more protectable than Georgia was, by the way, because Georgia didn't have that strategic depth. That's what the example of Georgia clearly shows. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. Kasparov, we hear frequently that uh, we're trying to offer off-ramps to Vladimir Putin. Uh, do you believe Vladimir Putin is looking for any, any off-ramps whatsoever? Of course, he is looking for any negotiation because he is very successful using them for his, uh, um, uh, for his own purpose. Uh, but he has no interest in any settlement. I believe uh, for a long time that uh, his interest was opposite to the interest of the United States and the free world because he always wanted to create conflicts. He, he needed conflicts uh, in the Middle East, you know, conflict with the Iranian nuclear program because these conflicts helped to push oil prices up and that was absolutely crucial for the survival of his regime. And now he needs conflicts because uh, that's the only way for him to sell his dictatorship in Russia. Um, the Russian propaganda machine is probably worse now than at any time of, you know, that I can remember. It's my mother tells me that she's turning 78, that is probably even worse than under Stalin because it's more powerful. You have 24-7 propaganda that is anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-Ukrainian, anti-everybody. So it's, and uh, this atmosphere, you know, helps Putin to keep, he, keep Russia, Russia subdued. And uh, um, his goal, as was mentioned in few testimonies here, is not even just to take over the territory of the neighboring country, though of course he would love to, to, to uh, enlarge Russia, uh, but uh, most importantly, to destroy the um, system of international security that has been created in Europe since 1945 and uh, of 89, 91 uh, at the end of the Cold War. So that's why uh, all these negotiations for him uh, is just you know, a way to buy time and, and to gain some more ground and to move forward because Putin doesn't ask why. He also asks why not. And uh, if, um, if the free world vacates a space, Putin grabs it. Thank you. you know, we've all heard of the little green men. Uh, are, do any of the witnesses have any kind of intelligent, intelligence estimates in terms of what Russia has committed to eastern Ukraine? How many troops? What type of equipment? Um, yes. You know, yes. Well, let me yeah, go with please. Dr. Blank. Yes. Uh, in my written testimony, uh, I quote an article uh, from Jane's, which came out uh, the other day. It's based on conferences between Ukrainian uh, officers and American analysts. They say there are 14 to 20,000 Russian troops. A uh, report in today's paper said that NATO estimated, or that the Pentagon estimated, 12,000. So I think we'd be comfortable saying that we're between 12 and 20,000 Russian troops. Uh, uh, 20,000 Russian troops are in Ukraine, thousands more on the border, and a large-scale naval and air buildup, including uh, the deployment of nuclear-capable missiles, is taking place in Crimea as we sit. President Shaksvili. Yes, uh, we, here I have uh, photos, Senator, and he, it clearly shows these are the weapons that can, uh, that are only given to Russian special forces. Uh, this is highly sophisticated Russian weapons; would never be given to any 
uh, local rebels, this, this new, uh, brand new infantry fighting vehicle they have. Uh, they have uh, the artillery launching system here that were spotted in parades inside Russia just uh, one year before the invasion, obviously, so that's the regular equipment of the Russian army. But besides, I mean, what we have to keep in mind here, first, Russia, this is the war, as you rightly said, uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer, that Russia doesn't even recognize its fighting. So first, they were sending in North Caucasians, mostly Muslim population, with the hope that mainstream Russians would not really care if they die. Now they're mostly sending troops from beyond the Urals, Far East, mostly from uh, many of them from ethnic minority areas from there, and basically are very careful not to send in Moscovites and St. Petersburg people. They had to send them, uh, Pskov Airborne in the August last year, and there was a political scandal where a number of them have died, and that really spread in Russia. So what it is telling you that Russia, once you raise the cost for Putin's invasion, there is no way he's going to follow the up with the stakes because there is a very thin layer of tolerance Russians have towards human casualties. That's the structure of his troops clearly indicate to you that he's really, in some way here, uh, has very little maneuver. So that's it's so important to take this decision on the weapons because that's going to reverse many of the plans he has uh, about that country. Thank you. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Pfeiffer, I, I understand that you and a number of your colleagues have recently released a report on the Ukrainian crisis, and that one of the cases that you make in that report is the importance of providing uh, military assistance to Ukraine, including defensive um, lethal weapons and light anti-armor weapons. Can you tell this panel more about the case that you make in that report and why this is why you believe this is important. Uh, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, this was a report that was issued by the Atlantic Council, Brookings, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs uh, by seven other former government officials and myself. Uh, five of us went to NATO and went to Ukraine in January to get an understanding of the military situation in eastern Ukraine and also specific needs. And most importantly, we had uh, a retired American four-star, General Chuck Wald, with us, who really could, I think, apply a military mind. Uh, the recommendations that we made were for serious assistance. So we proposed a billion dollars a year for three years. Uh, and we looked at what the Ukrainians, both in Kyiv, but we also went out to the uh, field headquarters at Kramatorsk and met with the commander there, the sorts of requests that they had. Actually, most of their requests were for non-lethal assistance. They wanted things like counter-battery radars that could pinpoint the origin of rocket strikes and artillery 20 to 40 kilometers out. We were told that 70% of Russian uh, Ukrainian casualties are from rocket and artillery strikes. They wanted uh, reconnaissance unmanned aerial vehicles. They wanted the means to jam Russian and separatist uh, drones. They wanted secure communications. The one item that they, they, they requested in terms of lethal military assistance was light anti-armor weapons. Uh, we were told in Kyiv that basically their stockpile of these weapons are at least 20 plus years old and about three quarters of them just don't work. Uh, so that was the one item there that uh, they thought would be a very useful American contribution to filling uh, a significant gap that they have. And Mr. Wilson, since the Atlantic Council was part of that report, can I ask you to comment on that as well as respond to the concerns that have been raised by Germany and France and about the potential for escalation of the situation in Ukraine if we provide um, defensive weapons? Yes, Senator Sheen, thank you very much. Um, I think of it in 
two respects. Um, strategically, if we're, aim, if we're trying to, to help support the Ukrainians uh, in achieving a better political outcome for this crisis in the East, um, the absence and the clarity of the fact that we won't provide them weapons actually undermines their hand at the negotiating table. So if you do believe in a political resolution to what's happening in the East, by strengthening the Ukrainians' ability to raise the cost for Russians if they turn to uh, further violence, it actually puts President Poroshenko in a much better uh, position uh, negotiating uh, an, an outcome, some type of outcome. But there's also a moral argument that we should think about, and that Ukraine is a sovereign, independent nation that's under attack uh, from a neighbor. It's under attack from a neighbor after recognizing that we were party through the Budapest Memorandum to helping to respect and preserve its territorial integrity. So I think there is a moral aspect to this as well, that Ukraine has an essential right to be able to defend itself um, and us standing back and not supporting it in that, pro in that effort, um, I think carries a, a heavy strategic and moral burden. Um, I think that we've heard from some of our European allies of concerns um, about potential for escalation, that the, the Russians could double down and escalate more. Um, it's hard for me to see how President Putin is already arguing to the Russian people that the United States and other allies are sending weapons to Ukraine. Um, he has already demonstrated his willingness to frontally invade Ukraine uh, if he needs to. It is hard for me to see how this measure actually is any more provocative than given what he is doing in Ukraine today. I think what is important is that we do this in a way that brings uh, American leadership, I think, would bring many allies on board with us. So there is concern that this will split the alliance. And as Ambassador Pfeiffer has said, I think there are at least six allies in Europe and Asia, um, Canada as well, that would likely join a United States decision if it were a clear decision. There is nervousness about a somewhat ambivalent U.S. decision to do this lightly, partially. But I think a, a serious strategic decision to stand by Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine with uh, support at the level that uh, this report recommends would demonstrate to our allies that this was a serious strategy and would have some of them stand with us and the others not openly oppose. And do you have any insights into at what point, if at all, uh, Germany and France might change their view about um, the importance of providing weapons? I think the, the greatest likelihood is first United Kingdom, uh, Denmark, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, Canada, Australia, um, a collection of countries that would stand with us first. I don't think you are likely to see, certainly uh, on the German side, uh, active participation in the supply of lethal military equipment. However, at the Wales summit, Chancellor Merkel and President Hollande did commit as part of a NATO commitment to intensify NATO's support for Ukrainian defense modernization. And so I think there's a way not to exclude them, but actually to include them in a broader strategic effort to stand by Ukraine's uh, 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 building of its defense capacities. They likely wouldn't be uh, come around on the provision of lethal military assistance, but they certainly would be partners, I think, in a broader effort. So you don't see that if if Russia or continues to violate this Minsk II agreement and continue to provide material and people that that might encourage um, Chancellor Merkel and President Hollande to change their view? 
Does anybody disagree? I mean, you're about to tell me that you don't think so, well, I assume. I wouldn't, I wouldn't completely rule it out. You have seen a remarkable evolution of Chancellor Merkel's position on this. Um, the incredible nature of what President Putin is doing has actually turned German public opinion against Russia, which was not uh, something that you could have imagined. And frankly, Chancellor Merkel has been the key to holding European unity together on the sanctions. Um, I think this would be quite a big step for them to move to providing lethal military assistance to Ukraine. However, you have seen the Germans step forward this year in providing lethal military assistance to the Peshmerga in Iraq, which in and of itself is a significant development in German defense policy. And does everybody else on the panel agree with that, Dr. Blank? Yeah. Well, I, 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 the, I, I, the French foreign minister said the other day that if Russia continues to break the agreement that, uh, reached in Minsk, that France will vote to expand sanctions. Uh, I think Russia will continue to violate the, the Minsk Accords, and therefore I expect France to follow what President Obama did today, which is to extend sanctions and perhaps even uh, uh, enlarge them. And I suspect that if they, Russia does continue to move forward, that the French can be persuaded over time to support the provision of legal, lethal weapons. And uh, Germany I'm less certain of for the same reasons that uh, Damien has given. Yeah, uh, well, uh, on, on France, I remember that in 2008, when they supplied the Mistral uh, helicopter uh, you know, warships to Russia, when we strongly protested to them because they were guarantors of the ceasefire, uh, some very high-level French officials replied to us rather cynically that they would supply us with the missiles to sink Mistral's, no problem with that, if we, had, uh, if we would like to buy them. Uh, so France could be very in inventive in this kind of approach. Uh, now, now in Germany, uh, I, was, uh, I saw Chancellor Merkel uh, last month at the European People's Party um, uh, uh, summit in um, Brussels, and actually she took the floor initially and she told her, I know some people at this table want to ease the sanctions, I'm telling you outright, Germany will not support it. And she is the kind of person that certainly leads the sanction movement right now. I don't see Germany for a number of very you know, historic and psychological reasons ever supplying little equipment, but they've been good on supplying non-little. I mean, they, in some other cases, I think that might happen. But I don't think that should be an impediment to the U.S. doing that. Because, I mean, as I said, I mean, the, uh, there is a moment when the, only the United States, but the problem with not supplying weapons is of different sort. Right now, and this was the case in the case of Georgia, because there is no signal from Washington, Czechos checks, Slovaks, Bulgarians, and a number of others are refusing to provide even spare parts from old Soviet equipment to Ukraine, precisely for the reason because they don't want to stay alone if Washington is not on board. So Washington, by not supplying lethal weapons, is also blocking the others from doing it because that has really become this cornerstone right now. We are at the crossroads, and it's really becoming very counterproductive. And finally, no sanctions. Now, sanctions, new sa sanctions are always helpful, but there is a moment after which only sanctions can also cause lots of risk. Because what might happen that Putin, by having the sanctions, think, might think, I have very little time left, I better seize the rest of it, go for it, and then, of course, from the position of strength, negotiate my way out of sanctions because Europeans will not send sanctions anyway for a long time. And after some time, they'll come back to me. So there is a moment when only sanctions, only they will, might be even uh, not as helpful as before because you need something else. Thank you, my time is up. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses who are here today. I think it was shortly after the demise of the Soviet Union that uh, President George H.W. Bush had said, Europe whole, free, and at peace. 
Uh, and now we see the complete rearrangement attempts by Russia to uh, rearrange the post-Cold World international order. Um, we've seen a determined effort uh, by you, brave uh, soldiers in Ukraine uh, to stand strong, uh, fought valiantly, but obviously overwhelmed and overmatched. Uh, we've seen questions in the Baltic states about our commitment. Uh, you and I, President Shakasvili, had a conversation about timing, promises made, uh, and concern within the region, concern about the promises that the United States has made, morale within Ukraine, uh, questions as to the resolve of NATO, whether NATO could withstand a challenge, if that is indeed, uh, indeed uh, the question before us. And so your experience in Georgia, you talked to the chairman a little bit about your experience in Georgia. Uh, Mr. Wilson talked a little bit about the commitment of the international community. Uh, as, the, as President Poroshenko's advisor, as the person who he is uh, uh, taking this role on internationally, do you believe that the international coalition exists and will stand with the United States uh, to step up our efforts? Well, Senator, you're absolutely right that there was U.S. guarantee, first of all, for Budapest Memorandum. I know one of the things I omitted to mention was that U.S. also, uh, the Ukraine also gave on U.S. insistence, manpads. They don't even have manpads because the United States strongly insisted they follow up on their promise, not only nuclear warheads, but they also gave uh, thousands of manpads, which they now really need in that situation. So, yeah, uh, on international coalition, certainly I agree with uh, Mr. Wilson. There are countries that are very much on board, but they are right now basically they are standing by because they want for Washington to lead. There is no way they can do something on their own. I, I still would imagine Poland might risk doing something on their own, but for the others, I, don't, I wouldn't bet uh, for that. But once there is a signal coming from Washington, I'm sure there will be a strong coalition also on supplying weapons. And one thing we should know also, there are a number of people, nationals from these countries, including my nation, that are fighting like volunteers on, side, on the side of Ukrainian army. We have uh, we had Georgian officers dying for them there. You know, we, we are proud that we're part of the operations in uh, I, I and the others. We had lots of people that died in Afghanistan and Iraq by the, uh, fighting all, uh, alongside of the Americans. But also now many of those people, many of the people that went to Afghanistan with the Americans, men went to Iraq, uh, they are fighting in Ukraine. We, I've seen, we have like uh, basically a couple of hundred Georgians from those operations that were uh, also went through the training now fighting there. There you also see Poles there. You see countries from Baltic, uh, people from Baltic countries. So there is already coalition of citizens of the nations around Ukraine, fighting for Ukraine because they understand that it's also their battle. There is also lots of sympathy in those nations, but for that, you need for these countries to get together, to, you need empowerment from Washington. And I'm sure there will be countries that will be American allies on military front. Nobody is asking for American boots on the ground. That's out of question. Ukraine has enough fighting manpower. There are people who will stand up for the nation. But also, uh, and there will be other countries that will be on this kind of second rank, like Germany, that might not be part of the, these large-scale military efforts, but they certainly were important component of the sanctions list. So I think this is, there is an overwhelming sympathy towards Ukraine, and I don't see this uh, falling apart unless something dramatic and bad signal comes from Washington. Ambassador Piper, you mentioned in your, in your testimony uh, that the sanctions had not yet achieved their political goal, and you also then followed it up with, uh, we need to make it clear to Russia that its actions will have a cost. So I want to talk about uh, what, what do you envision, what would indeed extract that political goal and what would the cost be to Russia that needs to be uh, reached? Uh, well, I believe that if the West can maintain unity on sanctions 
And the key point here is persuading Moscow that the sanctions remain in place until the Russians change their policy course. Uh, you've already seen significant damage to the Russian economy, $150 billion in capital flight from Russia in 2014. Uh, Russian reserves fell by about $140 billion over the course of the year, largely to support the ruble, and it wasn't very successful. The ruble is about 50% of the value against the dollar that it was last summer. So there's been a huge impact on the Russian economy. In fact, the Russian finance minister, who about three weeks ago recommended cutting every aspect of the Russian defense, I'm sorry, every aspect of the Russian state budget by 10%, except for defense, is now saying they have to cut defense. So there, there is an impact going on here, but I think uh, Mr. Putin is playing, he's making a bet. And that bet is that the West will not be able to sustain the sanctions. And, and there is a very key date here in July, which is uh, the European Union imposes sanctions for one year duration. Uh, EU practice is that if the goal of the sanctions is not achieved, the sanctions are rolled over, they're extended for another year. Uh, Mr. Putin, I think, is hoping that there will be enough opposition among EU countries in July that those sanctions will not be extended and that he can basically escape the economic pain without having to do the desired course reaction. I think if, in fact, the West can sustain those sanctions and make it clear that they're on through the end of the year into 2016 until there's a policy change course, he's going to see his reserves probably run out within a one and a half years or so, and he's going to see the average Russian facing huge inflation, I think 19% is the current figure, and the possibility that their average uh, purchasing power may decline 15 to 20% over the course of the year. That, I think, is going to have an impact on Mr. Putin and his policy. And, and Dr. Blanca, in your written statement in your testimony, how much time would we need in Ukraine for proper training uh, with the equipment from the United States? Well, that would depend on the nature of the specific equipment, but I don't think it's really going to take that long. Everything we've seen says that the Ukrainians learn very quickly how to use the equipment. If we send it over and we send over uh, enough people who know how to use it and train, I think it would be a matter of days or weeks at the most. But uh, I have to argue that the, uh, we should have been doing this months ago because, I, like Ambassador Pfeiffer, I believe that Putin is going to try to use the spring and summer to create a fait accompli uh, in Ukraine and uh, break up the sanctions regime on that basis. And that's another question I want to say. How much time uh, do you think we have on this? Not much because, uh, frankly, we're, uh, my sources have told me that uh, basically the uh, Pentagon has been told to go slow on giving even the equipment that it has. Uh, there's no excuse for saying that we're still doing a review of what Ukraine needs. This has been going on for a year, uh, yet it's going on. So I think there are people in the administration who are deliberately undermining uh, efforts to help Ukraine, and they need to be uh, stopped and the signal sent out that we will help Ukraine as needed. Senator, last year, last March, when the whole thing started, had already started, I've been telling some of the administration officials, why don't you try to start at least training? You know, there, are, there is framework for training. They told me we don't have enough time. Now, Russia has done since then six or seven rounds of training of the so-called uh, separatist troops. What it, what it indicates to you, lots of time has been lost. We know from Georgian experience, Americans are very good at training. You put Marines or some other troops on the ground, they can to train full brigade within four or five weeks. Remember, the other point for U.S. training is that 
you now have the, you do you don't have this kind of disorganized troops when you have U.S. trained soldiers that might be used for all kind of bad means, like you know uh, either uh, moving against the legitimate government. When you have U.S. element present, that leads to also brings lots of stability to constitutional systems of democracies. That's one of the beauties of the U.S. training. And Ukraine also needs as, as this kind of stability as badly as it needs help with with the uh, with defending itself. Because you know what Russia's plan is, you know to defeat to inflict defeat on the Ukrainians, that's their hope, and then send back uh, disorganized troops to do some nasty things in, back in Kiev. And that will never work if U.S. training is already installed in place. And by the way, there is, I already have a list that we, the Ukrainian government has submitted to the U.S., which is really required and needed. And that list has been circulated for quite a long. The U.S. government knows what is needed. It has been after, done after long you know, consultation with unofficial ones, with pe people in Pentagon. So it's not like the, they're coming. By the way, think is very modest. I looked at the list. It looks really modest. It includes also some anti-tank TOW javelin missiles, but it's really the numbers are so modest. And in terms of money, it's really not much. What is really expensive, Ukrainians have. They have anti-air, they have heavy artillery, they have lots of other things. It's not a matter of money. It's a matter of political will right now. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Thank you, much. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here today. Um, I am supportive of uh, extending defensive weapons to the Ukrainian uh, army, but uh, I want to express and ask some questions regarding some reservations that I have about that position, um, but then just open with a comment uh, regarding my frustration on this conversation. Um, we are obsessed with this question of providing arms to the Ukrainians, um, and it, it matters. Uh, but uh, it is um, obsessive within the American context because it is one of the few, if only, tools that we have to try to blunt and combat Russian aggression in the region. Um, I was there at the height of the Maidan protests. I spent two hours uh, sitting talking to President Yanukovych uh, and listening to him give a litany of perceived and real abuses uh, that Europe and the United States had perpetuated against Ukraine. And the reality is, is that we had a long time to try to stop this from becoming a crisis, but because we are not resourced as a nation, uh, because we hamstring ourselves when it comes to the tools that we could use to try to create greater partnerships with countries that are at risk of falling into the growing, Soviet, growing Russian sphere, um, we uh, then are stuck with crises in which we know how to respond to because we know we have the ability to supply weapons. Um, and so in the fall, I was in Belgrade on the day that Putin was coming into town to do an unprecedented display of military prowess uh, through the central streets. Well, our ambassador was begging for a few thousand dollars from the federal government here to increase exchange programs with the United States, right? We, we aren't doing what is necessary in and around the region to try to stop these crises from happening in the first place. And so I think this is an incredibly important conversation, and I'm glad that we're having this hearing, but we better uh, adopt a strategy soon uh, to stop the next Ukraine from happening um, so that we aren't caught in this crisis, which is a hard one to unwind. Um, here are the reservations uh, that I have. Um, first, let's admit that what we're talking about would be relatively unprecedented. We're talking about the overt arming 
of a country that is uh, under military threat and occupation and invasion from the Russians. Let's just acknowledge that during the Cold War, when the Soviets were a much bigger threat to the United States than the Russians are today, we didn't do this. Whether it was the invasion of Hungary or the invasion of Afghanistan, well, we used other tools. We did not, at that time, make the choice to provide overt arms to the Afghans or to the Hungarians. Now, I think the circumstances are different today, and so I'm supportive of, uh, of uh, defensive weapons, but this isn't a no-brainer. This would be a change in the policy that we have traditionally observed over the long course of the last 100 years. Um, here are my two reservations. I'll ask the first question to um, Mr. Pfeiffer. Um, your report and all of your recommendations are predicated on the belief that the cost will be so high to Putin that he will change behavior. Whether or not this provokes him or not, what if the cost is not high enough? What if he continues to move forward um, and the first round of arms that we supply are not enough? What are you recommending? Are you recommending one batch of uh, defensive weapons? Are you recommending that we um, stage uh, our supply line to them to respond to the moves that the uh, Russians make. What's our end game here? When is enough uh, too much? No, no, Senator, I think that, that's a very good question. Let me uh, break my answer down into two pieces. Uh, first of all, uh, we believe that providing these levels of weapons, which I think are actually on the low end of the military scale, we're not talking about F-16s, advanced offensive weapons, and we're certainly ta not talking about American combat troops. Um, but the calculation here is that when you go and you look at what the Russians have done over the last eight months to hide from the Russian people the fact that Russian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine, it's, it's really uh, extraordinary, and I would actually sorry, it's disgraceful. Uh, reports of Russian soldiers being buried at night, reports of Russian casualties. So I, I heard a story from a friend of my wife in Moscow who said, somebody lost their leg uh, fighting in Donetsk in August, and he's been told if you disclose that publicly, you will lose your pension forever. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there really is a, a, a real concern here in Moscow that casualties could ha have an impact. And I'm not sure that Mr. Putin cares per se about Russian soldiers and uh, casualties, but I think he does care a lot about the impact of that on the Russian public's attitude and, and their attitude towards him. And, and this is against the background of you know, four or five months of polls that show while the Russian people may support trying to pull Ukraine back towards Russia, majorities do not want to see the Russian army fighting in Ukraine. So I, I think there is, I would make the argument that there is the, uh, a good chance that in fact this could succeed in altering that cost-benefit calculation to the point where the Russians would say military escalation makes no more sense because uh, we're going to have casualties, it'll require over-involvement by the Russian army and therefore we wanted to pursue a peaceful settlement. We do in our report, nobody who wrote the report, we are not recommending American combat troops. We even said that the equipment that would be provided has to be operated by the Ukrainians so you would not have American technicians there. Uh, I would say we're not in a position to provide advanced offensive arms. We are going to have some limit and I would argue that you need to make that limit clear to the Ukrainians privately so that they know what to expect. Uh, but we can make in a fire break that prevents us from getting caught into this endless spiral of escalation with the Russians that I would argue then keeps us safely on the side of not going into a direct U.S.-Russian military confrontation. Let me just ask my second question quickly, uh, Damon. Um, 
you talked about the fact that some European allies would support us, some wouldn't. Um, Putin has a lot of goals here, but one of them is to break Europe. Uh, and so this would be convenient for him to have half of Europe supporting defensive weapons, half not. Um, what's the potential consequences of Europe not being together on this? Um, as many have said, the ultimate win here is that a Russian economy suffers uh, under the tremendous weight of the sanctions such that it changes his position. But um, aren't we going to risk losing um, countries like the Czech Republic or the Hungarians or the Greeks uh, if we start to split over issues of military arming? Or can we hold folks together on everything else besides the question of defensive weapons? I think many of our allies would expect the United States to actually lead here. And it would not be unusual if you look at cross decisions, controversial decisions in, in the alliance, where the United States is out front, has key allies stand with it, and some others stand behind it. The United States is rarely in the middle of the pack there. This is, this is risky. It's not a no-brainer, as you say. I don't think it's the kind of thing that would lead to an overt split within the alliance. We saw even over something as sensitive as Iraq, which was a very divisive issue within the alliance, we still were able to craft an agreement of a NATO training mission in Iraq after the fact and find something that brought the allies together. And I think that would be an important part of this element to this narrative, that not only does the United States move forward with some other allies in concert bilaterally, but there is actually a NATO component in which all the allies are playing a role in supporting Ukraine, not with arming, but with a, a defense reform and a defense package. Your original point, I think, however, is right. We're obsessed with the issue, it's the issue of the day. Putin, I think, is looking to win right now financially. I think the time-sensitive part is the collapse of the economy. I think that's a, a real danger right now, even as we debate weapons. And second, the weapons are, are effective if we have a strategy, part of a broader strategy, that where Putin looks up and he realizes that we, I mean, we are far stronger across the board. You mentioned Serbia. An American strategy that is moving on NATO enlargement in Montenegro and actually working to deepen a partnership with Serbia to show that we will actually push back in asymmetric ways as well, I think helps to, f to fill out a more comprehensive strategy, weapons being an essential element of that, but not the only element. Mr. Kasroff, yeah. yes. Um, Senator Murphy mentioned uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, I assume Poland, Soviet interventions in Eastern Europe. But I don't think that we can compare the situation with Ukraine because Soviet Union, as much as I hated this kind of uh, uh, actions, operated within the sphere of influence agreed in Yalta in 1945. So the, the world was divided. Uh, today, it's totally different. Because when you look at the collapse of the Soviet Union or even the collapse of Yugoslavia, all new states, even the Yugoslavia, seven new states, including Kosovo, they all were formed within the territorial administrative borders created uh, uh, within the empire. So all of them. So uh, whether they're right or wrong, you know, that was an agreement. So, and if you look at Ukraine, every Russian president, every Russian parliament signed or ratified one or another form of treaty or agreement with Ukraine, and Russia never ever expressed any concerns about U Ukrainian territorial integrity. Never raised an issue. Even Saddam Hussein raised an issue of Kuwait. Uh, Hitler talked about Sudetland or Danzig. Russia never raised this issue. So that's why it's absolutely unique. And this attack is uh, unprecedented because it violated the 
not only agreements, but also the understanding of how the world would be split uh, after the end of the uh, uh, Cold War. I, I don't disagree. I think that's a very good point. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator, yes. For, sure. Uh, Senator, first of all, I, I need to thank you for your intervention on Ukraine. I, I was there uh, together with a group of European parliamentarians just before we came. And I remember, and then we were proclaimed persona non grata, and then your visit, by the way, together with the other U.S. colleagues, really changed the equation. That came at the right moment for, because they were really losing steam, you know, they were had this little bit of frustration, we're being abandoned, and you being there, they, it's really changed the whole idea of what the Ukrainian revolution was all about, and it made it very much value-oriented. Now, there is another story, which is not only just weapon story in Ukraine, well, about U.S. enrollment. It's a good story, and it also has to do something with my country, because what happened in Ukraine that Georgia, some members of my government became members of Ukrainian government. That, that's also a very unique experience. Our Minister of Interior has become their first min Deputy Minister of Interior of Ukraine, and she's running the reform of Ukrainian policy with the U.S., with the USAID. They, are, they fired the entire Kiev traffic police, and they'll go city by city, and this is American money. This lady is Georgian, and they're together creating new Ukrainian police that would show how it is to work and operate without bribes. That had never happened before in that part of the world, or at least in Ukraine. Then there will be, there is another story. We have our Deputy Minister of Justice from Georgia there, who is working also with your programs, and also, by the way, with U.S. Congress-funded NGOs that are doing tremendous job in deregulation and you know doing their their bureaucracy is like something that unimaginable in terms of uh, you know discretion of bureaucrats and how the way how they start you know the, how they do this corruption thing. This is again the Americans doing that together with that. We have Minister of Health who just had a long conference together with American donors and uh, U.S. ambassadors involved there on this fight, and they are doing now absolute new transparent procedures how to do these tenders and things which never also happened in Ukraine. It was a major source of corruption traditionally. Uh, we have Deputy Attorney General of Ukraine, which is Georgian, former Deputy Attorney General of Ukraine, and now he, we, we are bringing, we, are, we invited U.S. experts to sit there together with them because they are working on high-profile criminal cases. And again, there is the anti-corruption bureau, which will be created where also there will be active U.S. participation. So it's not only about weapons. I think in long-term Ukraine survival, and Ukraine's strategy should be based on the idea that they have this, they have something else to offer besides military things. But this should all be just backed up with something else as well. Thank you. I'd like to just make two points very quickly. Uh, it, the discussion about weapons is insufficient in the sense that weapons to realize their maximum benefit for Ukraine have to be sent urgently, but as part of a broader strategy to rebuild the Ukrainian government and economy, which is also an urgent issue, and as an information strategy. I mentioned in my paper, no one is talking about the number of casualties the Russians are taking, which are huge. We are doing nothing informationally to counter the wave of propaganda. Furthermore, to the extent that the United States leads the Atlantic Alliance, not only will NATO members follow or at least accept what we're doing, we will have also changed the balance of fear because right now the Russians are not afraid of anything that Europe might do. As President Saakashvili has pointed out, when the Russians understand that if they go further, they encounter the United States directly, they stop, they even on occasions retreat. And finally, we have done this before. Let me remind you about Afghanistan, where we gave very sophisticated weapons to people directly in the line of Soviet aggression, and it worked. This is not the Soviet Union. This is an army that cannot stand the protracted war or take that kind of risk. And therefore, providing weapons, I think, will help stabilize and perhaps even turn the situation around if it is backed up by a coherent strategy. Senator Kane. 
Thanks for your patience. Absolutely. It's all been educational. And thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to, to all the witnesses. Uh, three topics. Uh, first, on the uh, sanctions and economic effect on Russia right now, it sounds as if one of the takeaways from today should be work that we need to do with Europe to make sure that the annual re-up of the sanctions, uh, you know, that, that continuity has got to be our message, our very strong message to the Europeans. And I gather that everybody's on board with that. We need to do more uh, on our side. The President did more today, and there's more that Congress can do. But I'm particularly interested in the low uh, cost of oil as a perennial problem for the Russian economy. Um, and it's not just a problem for the Russian economy, it's also a problem for the Iranian economy, which is a separate topic, though that, that is a very important issue for us now. What are, what are other things we can do in the energy space, whether it's sanctions, whether it's assisting European nations with energy technologies? We've had a fairly contentious debate on this committee about things like LNG exports, even to send the signal that that would be something we would contemplate into the region to help to help nations break their, you know, uh, their need to rely too much on Russian energy. Talk a little bit about low oil energy costs and what we ought to be doing to continue to pressure the Russian economy using that as a strategy. Please, Dr. Blank. There are a number of things we can be doing. We can increase the export of oil and of LNG, which would require, of course, building infrastructure here, as well as amending legislation. But oil can be already sent. It was reported last year that we could send 40 million barrels a day for six months without undermining the statute, or without reversing the meaning of the statute, guaranteeing the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We could probably still do that. We can further encourage much more strongly the building of the southern corridor of gas across the Caspian Sea and provide strong guarantees to countries like Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, and so on that want to uh, make that happen. And third, to promote not only uh, the building of interconnectors within Europe so that the new terminals that are being built in northern Europe and the Baltic can then move gas to the south, but also if we pass the uh, TTIP, that makes every European signatory of the treaty eligible to receive gas exports from the United States on an expedited basis without going through the very convoluted bureaucratic procedure. Once that law is in place, they can then get gas from the United States and we can supplant a fair amount of the Russian gas exports, which is what Russia uses for political purposes. The problem is not that Russia exports gas and oil to Europe. The problem is that they can do so for, and use that for political purposes. If it becomes a straight commercial transaction, well and good. But to the extent that they have politicized this, we need to take that weapon away from them. Other thoughts on the energy space? Yeah, I, I would just, uh, Senator, just add on the LNG. I, my understanding is that the United States is now building to the point where by about 2020, we can export between 100 and 120 billion cubic meters of gas per year, which would be, I think, a sizable increase mm -hmm. in gas stocks. Uh, right now, my understanding is in most of Europe now, they actually have significant capacity to import LNG. Uh, they've, in fact, remained relied on the Russians because the Russian gas to the pipeline is cheaper. Right. But, you know, what we want to make sure is that Europe has the capacity that if the Russians were ever to turn the gas off, which I do not think is likely, and I'll get back to that in a moment, but that they, in fact, could continue receiving LNG, and it gets to uh, Dr. Blank's points about building interconnectors, which are now, I think, pretty good in most of Europe, but there's still areas, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, that I think are still vulnerable until they get some more interconnectors that would allow gas to move from the west to the east. Uh, I, I think, though, at the end of the day, 
it's hard for me to see the Russians' gas problem ever turning that gas off. I mean, it's, it's almost, it's a, a mutual deterrent relationship in that Europe needs the gas, so they want the cheaper gas, then they can, uh, because it's cheaper than LNG. But if Gazprom turns that gas off, it's a huge hole in the Russian budget uh, because they use that large amount of money that they make uh, by exporting the gas. Uh, I saw figures, and these are maybe about four years out of date, where about 25% of Gazprom exports went to Europe, but that accounted for about 70% of Gazprom revenues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so Gazprom has a big incentive not to, to do this, but it still makes sense for Europe to have a plan B in case the Russians ever reach that point. Sir Kasparov, I wanted to ask you a question. you want to comment yeah. on that before I ask yes. you a second um, question? Yeah, it, it was said here uh, numerous times about the importance of um, uh, keeping sanctions or even you know, increasing the sanctions. And of course, there are problems in Europe. But uh, sanctions, they are part of economic effect. They have a psychological effect. Mm -hmm. And so far, Putin succeeded in, in convincing not only the Russian public, but the Russian elite that these sanctions would not stand. So somehow, you know, and he has enough friends, you know, let's not forget, Czech, Re Czech Republic, the president, Zeman, has been financed by Lukoil, mm. openly. Yeah. Orban, you know, it's probably on, on Russian subsidies. Greeks, you know, you can look around uh, Europe and you'll find so many traces of, 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 of Putin's uh, actions, you know, and lobbying, and lobbying efforts that were unfortunately quite, uh, quite uh, successful. But it's very important, you know, that Putin could point out at multinational corporations that are still operating and that sends, you know, a signal of confidence. Just two days ago, ExxonMobil has announced about expansion of its operations in Russia. I mean, that's a fundamental, you know, argument for Putin. Okay, Obama, presidents, mm -hmm. you know, prime ministers, the business. Business is still here. And as long as we have this presence in Russia, as long as we have, you know, business as usual, it will be very difficult, you know, to win psychological war. Because expectations could actually destroy Russian economy even, 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 even sooner than, than, than economic effect. I, I agree with you. I think there's a psychological impact that even if you knew LNG wouldn't get there for two years, you start to do things that sends a message. And similarly with energy, I'm, I'm a big supporter of sanctions in the energy space. That's the lever that's being used. That's where we ought to sanction. Mr. Kasparov, I wanted to switch to another topic, which is, you know, we tend to look at these things through the eyes of, of a political people. What, from your experience, what will it take? What are the kinds of conditions that will cause Vladimir Putin to lose political support within his electorate, within Russian citizens? Because there's outside pressure, but the most effective pressure is often the inside pressure when the population starts to pull their support from you. You talked about the propaganda regime, et cetera, it makes it difficult for the message to get through. But from your experience, what will cause a, a, a decrease in the domestic political support for Vladimir Putin? Um, unfortunately, I do not see sort of a positive outcome in the nearest future. There will be blood. This Vladimir Putin is not going to lose his power through the normal election process. So he's there, he's a dictator, and he made it very clear that he would not leave the office. Uh, the good thing is that, you know, the country is so hyper-centralized as Russia, um, uh, doesn't have much of active political activities outside of the capital. So basically, even if he enjoys this 80% plus support, which I don't believe across the country, what matters is Moscow. Mm -hmm. And we know that numbers in Moscow are very different. Even St. Petersburg today is turned into some form of political province. Whatever happens in Moscow could determine the future of Russia. And we have 
pretty sizable middle class in Russia that is used to have a relatively comfortable life. Uh, they used to travel abroad. Uh, and I don't think this middle class will accept sort of long-term uh, decline of, of, of the standards that have been established. For, for quite a while, for many years actually, this middle class has been relatively silent. So we saw some of the protests in 2011, 2012. Yeah, people didn't like uh, uh, what's happened with the, with the so-called elections. But again, it was not enough, not powerful enough. The coalition was not there because the ruling elite believed that it that better stay with Putin than to join, join the protest. What will change everything is that if uh, people in the, in, in, in the ruling elite, some in the inner circle, and of course, Russian middle class, they all recognize that the Russia will have no future with Vladimir Putin. Stop ap appealing to Putin. He's irrelevant because he yeah. burned all the bridges. Right. You have to look for people who can end his rule with minimum bloodshed. So, and uh, I think it's, it's as long as Putin stays in the office, we'll see more, more political assassinations, more attacks on, 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 on neighboring countries, because that's the only algorithm where he can, he, he can survive. I think that America has many you know, ways of demonstrating it. And talking about Europe, is, it's exactly the opposite. You know? uh, America, Putin gained so much influence in Europe because America walked away. So only American reappearance there will send a signal because everybody wants to see the leadership. And uh, all, I know Baltic states well, I know Poles, you know, and forget Germany. I mean, just it's the, you remember in, in 2003, I think it was said in this, in the, in the, in this capital, uh, I think it's uh, uh, forgive Russia, big mistake, uh, punish France and ignore Germany. So basically ignore Germany, that's, that's because Mo Angela Merkel is, 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 is ahead of the coalition government and her f uh, foreign minister belongs to the Gerhard Schroeder's party. So expecting from this coalition, fragile coalition government to lead Europe is wrong. So that's why America's presence is paramount. Without it, nothing will happen, and it will send signal not only to Ukrainians, not only to Poles, Bolts, but also to Russian people that, you know, we go, America is back to business. Can, Mr. Chairman, could I, have, if others want to weigh in on that question, I don't have any other questions, but I'd love to hear their responses. Yeah, in response to your last question, uh, undermining Putin's domestic basis support is a long-term operation. But it requires the systematic application of a strategy to tell the truth, to use the information capabilities that we have for maximum strategic effect and broadcast to the Russian people just how bad the situation is inside Russia and where Putin is leading them. And that will in time do so. Furthermore, as uh, Mr. Kasparov has said, it is essential for the United States not only to lead in Europe but to stop showing fear and disengagement. And this will also have an encouraging effect upon Europe as well. Third, uh, we have to remember, if we look at Russian history, that it is always the case that when the Russian government enters into a protracted war, which it cannot win, that creates domestic unrest at home. Therefore, sending the weapons and making sure that the Ukrainian economy and government survive is not only desirable as an urgent remedy right now to impose costs on the war, but it transforms the, not only the balance of fear in Europe and in Ukraine, it transforms the strategic calculations inside Russia, because then you create the pressures that have historically worked to undermine this kind of government. Thank you, sir. I'd like to just make two points. Uh, one on sanctions. I would go back to the logic of the sanctions and, and go back to something that was being said about Russia and Vladimir Putin maybe in 2003, 2004, where, where Russians talked about President Putin has an implicit social compact with the Russian people in which he says, you're not going to have any political say, but in return you'll have economic security, 
rising living standards, you're going to see the economy do well. Sanctions make it more difficult for Mr. Putin to deliver on his part of that bargain, and that, I think, may have an impact on how the Russian people look at him. The second point, just briefly, I, I guess I would give a little bit more charitable uh, analysis of Germany. I, I think, actually, Chancellor Merkel has been uh, remarkably successful in pulling together the European Union, 28 diverse states with very different views. And I think for her, at least what I hear from German diplomats, I mean, this is at core, it's a matter of principle. I mean, she really takes to heart the idea that borders are inviolable and that countries should not use force to change those borders. Uh, so I, I think actually with her taking that role, I, I think it's some political risk because this is not easy either internally or also dealing with the Russians. Uh, but she has played a very good role, and I think it's where it makes a lot of sense for the United States to be working very closely with her in that role to sustain the sort of unity that we built with Europe over the last year. Mr. President. <clears throat> with regards to, to Russia, I mean, it's very clear that, first of all, the, the idea of this hearing, obviously, is what will happen next. And I can tell you, I, I, I met with Putin dozens of times. He always told me three things consistently, that he, he was menacing us with invasion. He will always mention that Ukraine is not a real country, it's, a, uh, it's just a territory. And third, he always said that Baltic countries are not defendable. He always says beforehand what he wants. People have heard it, and it's very clear that what, if he gets away with Ukraine, then Baltic countries, which don't have either strategic debt or manpower of Ukrainians, they just rely on US uh, Article 5 guarantees, which is an important stuff, but still, I mean, there, there are many vulnerabilities that they have, even more than Ukrainians ever, ever had. That's, so that's very clear that he will, move, he will continue on because that's the only way how he says he can maintain power inside Russia. Now, when we call about his 80% ratings, we should realize that this is a fear rating. This is not really a popular rating. People tend to measure it with the measurements of democracies. And that doesn't work this way in this kind of systems. You know, I think North Korean leader has even higher ratings. And doesn't mean that, you know, so what, what it means is that basically, People have been saying, well, Russians are, cannot, can stand just any sanctions. You know, that's a history of Russia. And I think this is not true simply because Russia has never had such a strong middle class. This is combination, first, of the U.S. assistance, bailing out the, US, uh, the Russian economy in the 90s, which really was the decisive factor. And then, of course, the oil price and redistributing inside Russia. This middle class has always lived with expanding living standards. They are not used to living with declining living standards. Nobody has seen them. So Putin, it makes Putin to panic. It makes Putin to make mistakes and to become more aggressive. So there is, a, and I think shale gas, generally US shale gas is the single most important factor in what have brought the oil thing and what brought him into this panic mode. What US did with its legal system, which doesn't happen in Europe, is that in Europe you can, you know, manipulate some you know, environmental groups and others block local shale production because it's whatever is underground, it it's basically belongs to the state. Here it belongs to the person who owns the land. And that makes the U.S. system so, so much more open to this kind of enterprises, entrepreneurial thing. So that's really changed the whole logic of the event. Suddenly good guys have energy and bad guys are, have lower money for their energy. So that from that standpoint, it's absolute decisive factor. I think there is no it's a matter of not many years that the thing is diverse. There is a physical fatigue. You cannot, there, every leader, even the most autocratic one, has his time span. I think Chinese have been smarter with that. They have been changing 
faces of their leaders, and uh, they had, we had a more flexible system. Here, this is a one-man show. You know, everything, there is no other political actor. He played around a little bit with Medvedev idea, it's gone. Now it's him. Er, you know, er, every credit is taken by him, every blame goes to him. And that's a very dangerous system for no matter which politician. From that standpoint, I'm very optimistic. I think Russian people are well-read people, they're well-traveled people. They, they certainly want to be respected internationally, although until now they had it both ways. They were getting, you know, playing around in the neighborhood, they were being nasty, and at the same time they still kept some kind of resemblance of respect. Now those two are not compatible, and people will understand it. And again, going back, I fully agree with Seven, the Afghan syndrome is a very important one. I was in the Soviet Union, I remember that. They certainly had, you know, I remember what a combination of low oil prices and manpads did. Until low oil prices, it wouldn't have worked. But now you had low oil prices, suddenly Soviet budgetary income went down, and then manpads reversed the logic on the ground. That's exactly what we have now. We have lower oil and gas prices, and we just need some javelins to, or, or some other things, whatever Ukrainians will be requesting, to change the cost equation. After all, the cost equation matters. Maybe, find it, maybe even not put Putin, but for the Russians overall, Russian public. Whatever elite is left there, security apparatus, it will certainly make lots of difference. And that's my main hope. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Kane. I'd like to go back to the story. I would like somebody to talk to the courage of the Ukrainian people. Senator Murphy talked about being on the Maidan. I think I was heartened, I was encouraged by my colleagues here in the Senate and the House unanimously passing the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, which did authorize lethal defensive weaponry for, for the courageous people of Ukraine. And the reason I think we did that on a unanimous basis, so many of us went over there. I was, I was with Senator Murphy, Murphy with a bipartisan delegation of about eight U.S. senators, and we walked the Maidan. We heard the story of the sniper attack. What, what I'd like to hear is, f from, from that point, I would like to hear the story of the, the rebellion the pushback from a Ukrainian military that had been hollowed out purposefully, but the courage of the Ukrainian people defending themselves, turning the tide, and then having that tide turned back against them because of Russian involvement, Russians' invasion with 14 to 20,000 troops and, and heavy weapons, which, by the way, I want to enter those, I want to enter those uh, pictures into the record. So I want somebody to speak to that. Some, somebody to answer the question, to answer the plea of, of President Poroshenko when he came before this Congress in a joint session and said that blankets and night vision goggles are important, he said, but one cannot win a war with blankets. So can somebody here just talk about what has happened in the military campaign against the rebels, how, how the tide had turned, and how it had been turned back again, and then how desperate the situation is? Because one of the reasons I held this hearing this week kind of rushed it, because we heard last week that there was potentially an offensive being planned within the next few weeks, and we heard that earlier, you know, something potentially spring offensive. So can somebody just talk about that history of this military conflict, this re rebellion, and, and what the likelihood is, and what this, how desperate the situation is? Well, I, can, I can try to answer uh, uh, as much as possible of that question. Uh, the, Russians have been behind the attempt to squelch the revolution from the beginning, even when it was just simply a demonstration on the Maidan. We know that Russian advisors were telling 
uh, Yanukovych's government to repress them and use force if necessary. We also have good reason to believe, uh, I was told this by Ukrainian politicians in October of 2013 when the issue was signing the, agreement with the, the association agreement with the European Union, which led uh, to the revolution, that Putin threatened Ukraine with invasion then if they signed. And uh, there were analysts in this town, myself among them, who warned at that point that Putin was doing that. We were disregarded. The fact of the matter is that the Ukrainian people have sacrificed what the Declaration of Independence calls their sacred fortune and their honor and their lives in order to live freely and independently and to make it clear that they wanted to, a better life which meant an association with Europe and European forms of governance. This is intolerable to Moscow for the reasons we talked about today. Empire is the only recourse Moscow has to save its kleptocratic autocracy. It has become a criminalized regime, a state that exports terror as well as uses it at home, and there's no denying that. It has done it in Georgia, it has done it at home, and it's doing it in Ukraine. The operation to seize Crimea was started before February 21st. We know this, for example, the medals that the Russian president gave out to his troops dates the operation from February 20th, the day before the EU agreement with uh, Yanukovych. Yanukovych then fled that night anyway, but the Russians were already active, and the only reason they didn't go faster is because the troops who were supposed to le lead that operation in Crimea were guarding the Olympics in Sochi, which ended only on February 23rd. This is a cold-blooded, premeditated aggression. It caught the Ukrainian government and army by complete surprise, and as a result, they lost Crimea. Then they started to use the organizational tools they had previously set up in Donetsk and Luhansk gubernias and provinces to agitate there. They uh, took advantage of some ill-considered decisions by the U new government on language policy and created a pretext for an invasion in March and April. That went forward. But Putin thought he could get away with doing that simply by giving the arms and some direction to locally organized forces. That proved to be impossible. As a matter of fact, they shot down MH317, as we know, and they were in danger of losing in August when Putin then had to commit Russian regular forces. Since then, Putin has had to escalate his commitment and basically take over the entire military operation. Now, the entire military operation from start to finish was predicated on creating what this is, this new Russia, Novorossiya term that goes back to Catherine the Great 250 years ago. In fact, it is an attempt to destroy Ukraine, create a land bridge from Russia all the way across southern Ukraine and Crimea to Transnistria, and project Russian power not only through Ukraine, but into the Balkans and Black Sea and beyond. Moscow has even sought military and naval bases in Greece, Montenegro, and Serbia. It is, I believe, using this truce to replenish its forces. The amount of shell and ammunition that the Russians have expended because their tactics are essentially basically artillery pounding have been enormous. And they are surprised, according to my sources, at how much they had to use in August and now again in January to achieve their objectives. Therefore, they have to call a halt. They signed on to Minsk and are trying to get a, a truce so they can replenish but I have no doubt that come springtime, they will make a move on, if not earlier, on Mariupol and the entire Black Sea coast of Ukraine, and perhaps all the way through Odessa as well. So therefore, that's a kind of survey of the entire military operation 
from start to finish. But the start was not February 2014. The start is 2005, when the first attempt by Moscow to seize Ukraine failed in 2004. Anybody else just want to speak to the courage of the Ukrainian people and why they need to be supported? President Shakespeare. Uh, I, I, I want to speak about pilot uh, Nadezhda Savchenko that is basically held, uh, what was kidnapped, uh, she's a military pilot, was active participator, uh, part participant of uh, the Maidan protests, uh, and she was kidnapped from the Ukrainian territory, brought into Russia, she's now held in Moscow, and she's on uh, basically in a, in a grave medical condition because she has been going through hunger strike. And, uh, you know, there are many Ukrainians like that that sacrifice their life. And the, a remarkable story of Ukraine is not just heroism on the battlefield, which was very obvious. You know, these are the troops that were backward technologically. For 10 years or so, they were just plundering everything, uh, giving up everything through legal means, but also illegal means. There was lots of corruption while Russia was building up things. So the, the, that really came into battle totally they, taken by surprise, unprepared. Uh, untrained, and still, they, uh, against all the odds, they were holding for against long, for long time against the overwhelming Russian forces are still continuing to do so. Now, the important thing to understand there is that uh, these people, uh, there is also another aspect to it. Most of these efforts of the Ukrainian army has been done also by volunteers. Basically, supply of the troop, medical supplies, uh, even the military supplies and the bulletproof vests, you know, there have been thousands and tens of thousands, and, uh, and in case of money, millions of Ukrainians contributing. You you it's not just war of uh, Putin versus Poroshenko or, you know, like some uh, against Ukrainian government. It's Putin's war against multi-ethnic Ukrainian nation. The other thing people don't really know here is that most of these troops fighting and protecting Ukraine are Russian speakers. And basically, a big part of them are ethnic Russians. This is not an ethnic issue. This is not a, you know, this is not a regional issue. This is not, as I said, government-to-government -government issue. This is the multi-ethnic, multicultural nation of Ukraine trying to defend its freedom, its values, and its ideals. And the whole society is part of it, because, as I said, the government was almost bankrupt. And you had people volunteering and basically supplying most of the things they are getting there. And I don't know any other country in the world where basically this number of volunteer part for the population had been engaged in what was basically an all-around national campaign for this nation's survival. And that's something to be considered for all of us because, you know, again, as I said, I told you about Georgian volunteers fighting there. Basically, most of them, you know, they, they are not there for money. They are not really paid anything. But whatever they are supplied with, these are given by ordinary Ukrainians. This is not the government that gives them that. I'll let everybody else sum summarize. I want to be respectful of Senator Sheen. She's got a question, and then, then I'll let everybody wrap up and give me th final thoughts. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I wanted to go back to the economic concerns because I, one of you, I think, I'm not sure who, suggested that support for weapons may be moot if the economy fails in Ukraine before that happens. And um, I know that the IMF has pledged funding, as has the EU and the United States, of course, um, but to what extent can the Ukrainian economy and President Poroshenko and the um, government survive the reforms that are being asked of it um, and keep the economy afloat and continue this um, 
military conflict at the same time, and what more can the United States do to help with that? Damon, do you want to start? Senator, I think that's uh, I think that's exactly one of my key concerns right now is that there may be a rationale for the the military fighting to die down. Putin doesn't need to own two slices of Donetsk and Lugansk. He needs all of Ukraine. And I think part of the strategy that I'm most concerned about right now is which economy collapses first, and can he race Ukraine? Can he push Ukraine's off the cliff first? This is why I've been, on the one hand, alarmed at how long and difficult it's been to get a, a, a significant international package together that includes the U.S. is catalytic, but the IMF and the EU will will add more. And at the same time, we're asking Ukrainians to do some quite difficult reforms. That said, I think this is the moment. President Poroshenko, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, they understand that they've had predecessors that had an opportunity to build a new Ukraine, and they failed at the time of independence, at the time of the Orange Revolution. They don't have a, many other shots at it. And so despite the difficulty, I think being able to communicate to the Ukrainian people that in this time of existential crisis is when they need to take some pretty dramatic steps. And we just saw the RADA pass very significant packages, which begin to raise uh, uh, overall energy prices, begin to address some structural uh, economic issues. But the gap there, I think, is, is a much more robust, a much uh, a more decisive intervention on the part of the international community, providing that economic assistance and providing that comfort. Because this is the race that I think Putin can let it sit for a while, allow his little project Sparta to build up its weapons, and, and try to go for all of Ukraine by driving out the economy, after all, trying to drive uh, the collapse of this government. Anyone else want to comment on that? Yeah. Um, Ambassador Pfeiffer and then Dr. Blank. Yes, and I, I, I just I mean, I, I think this is why we need to talk about a multi-pronged strategy. I mean, it's got to be not just providing arms, it's also got to be maintaining sanctions, it's also got to be doing the economic financial support, which I think will be costly. Um, the IMF program, as I understand it, is for $17.5 billion over four years. Uh, I've heard some economists suggest that in 2015 and 2016, above and beyond that, Ukraine could need an additional 20 to $22 billion. Um, you know, if we provide all the weapons in the world and they hold the Russians off and they stabilize line of contact and the economy collapses, you know, the West has lost its policy goal. Likewise, if we make the economy work, if we get them through the reforms, but then they also have the military collapses, you know, we've got to be doing both these pieces at the same time. And I think we have to face up to it. It will require probably an injection of serious resources both by Europe and the United States. Thank you, Dr. Blank. I would add to that, that while everything my colleagues have said is I agree with, that what is critical here as well, I think, is the psychological dimension. We are asking Ukrainians to do something of an extraordinarily difficult nature, and they haven't the sense that we stand behind them. On the other hand, if they were aware and understood that they had the full support of the US and of, of Europe, and that they were not alone, that would provide an enormous psychological strength and, and uh, reinforce other European states' ability and willingness to help them. And it would undermine a great deal of Russia's strategy. Therefore, all these factors come together, the provision of weapons and training, the economic political assistance, and the overwhelming psychological assurance that you are not alone. I certainly agree with that. We have sent mixed signals. And I think 
I would hope that Ukraine would know that we are behind them 100 percent. I, I do hope that this Congress can pass the reforms to the IMF, too, because that would allow us additional assistance as we're looking at where can we provide economic assistance to Ukraine. Um, President Saakashvili. Oh, well, I have just to add that besides 17 billion, overall pledge is 40 billion for the, pack, the reform package. It's very important that the United States, we, have, we are trying to now jumpstart the reforms, but it's very important that also this committee and generally overall the U.S. Congress pays greater attention. We need more codels coming, and specifically not on the only with the focus on military issue, which is an urgent issue because it has become tantamount to the symbol of whether Ukraine is abandoned or not. But beyond that, what's really is needed is real, real crackdown on corruption, real economic changes, really for the ordinary Ukrainians to see the difference. And from that standpoint, from our own experience in Georgia, the U.S. standing by the idea of reform, you know, uh, steering it in the right direction, you know, giving incentives, um, giving praise when necessary, and sometimes friendly, offer friendly criticism when it's also necessary. It's absolutely key for reformers inside Ukraine to overcome what are what this has been the, for decades, this vested interests of you know plundering and uh, and basically robbing that's quite you know, potentially very rich nation with very smart people and very talented people. And for I think this is the best. Parliament they ever had right now. It's really more most clean of more clean of of the West interests than any previous legislatures. So it's very easy to work with these parliamentarians. Many of them are quite inexperienced, so they need to be introduced also to the U.S. system. You need to bring them here as well. You need to get to know them, get to know them. You know that, that and that. I think there's that reminds me of what, what, what we were like this in mid '90s. And I remember our first. I was young parliamentarian in 90, back in '96, uh, fresh from GW in, uh, law school here. And I remember us coming back every time, every three, four, five, six months, together with a bunch of younger parliamentarians, not just to talk to you or, or ask for. A help but to learn to get educated you know to exchange ideas that was absolutely single strongest factor behind Georgian democracy somehow getting stronger and also get, communicate to the people and I think Ukraine needs this more than ever and I think your role here is decided I think this hearing also has the key role to play for that well thank you all very much for your compelling testimony and for your continued focus on Ukraine and thank you mr. chairman for this hearing Thank you, and I want to thank all my colleagues for, for attending. Uh, I'll, I'll just give everybody a, a chance to quickly wrap up. We'll go in reverse order. We'll start with uh, uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer. And just, you know, if, if there's something that you just haven't been able to get out, uh, but please. Well, thank you, Senator. Uh, I, I guess I'd, I'd come back to one point about how far the Russians want to go. And uh, although I do not exclude that the Russians might try to go all the way to Crimea to create the land bridge, I worry a little bit less than that than I think uh, Dr. Blank does. Uh, I think it's been interesting that in the last five or six months, I don't think Vladimir Putin has mentioned the term Novorossiya once. And what I hope that means is he understands that the further the West the Russians go, the more they're going to encounter a hostile population and the possibility of partisan warfare. Uh, having said that, I still think the Russians have a lot of possibility just, you know, fighting along the current line without a major offensive to distract, destabilize the government in Kyiv, and, and that may be their cheaper option. But I guess my final point would be whether uh, we're concerned more about the, uh, the, the big option going to Crimea or just having more of a not-so-frozen conflict along the line of conflict. Providing weapons in the context of sanctions and economic assistance to Ukraine is a way to challenge 
or to change that calculation in Moscow and hopefully bring the Russians to conclude that fighting no longer is worthwhile and that they have to find a way and actually finally take that diplomatic off-ramp. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, Mr. Wilson, one final thought? Senator, I wanted to go back to your last statement because I think it was one of the most important things here about the Ukrainian people. I think that is one of the most important factors that outside, outsiders actor, actually underappreciate. Ukraine is a victim of the tyranny of low expectations. A President Putin that couldn't imagine that the Ukrainian people could rise up and, de and determine their future, that was skeptical of the fact that the Ukrainians would even have a common ID national identity. And the irony that his invasion of Ukraine has done more to consolidate and strengthen that sense of identity and purpose uh, than any single thing. If we play this right, this is actually a 500-year defeat for Russia to have actually lost a country like Ukraine, which is a natural uh, uh, partner, a natural neighbor, and decisively having turned that country to the West. And yet the West also has a tyranny of expect, uh, low expectations towards Ukraine. If you talk to our Treasury officials, IMF officials, they're skeptical that Ukraine's a good investment. We've seen this fail before. If you talk to realists, they think, well, we can just cut a deal over the Ukrainian people's heads that this country will never go to NATO. I don't think that works anymore. That's not, President Poroshenko himself has now real constraints. I was there when protesters were outside his office because he was willing to agree to a ceasefire. The Ukrainian people now have a say in the future of what's going to happen. And I think outsiders underestimate that factor that the Maidan was genuine and it's what drove this from the beginning. So I just conclude with that we should remember how all of this started, that Ukrainians were actually willing to die for this concept of Europe, for a Europe which is at best skeptical about even wanting a Ukraine as part of Europe. And so that leads me back to where we fit into this. The entire chapter of integration in Europe has been driven by US leadership. It's European integration driven by the United States being a great European power providing the framework and helping that happen. If we stand back and think of ourselves as, as an observer as this unfolds, as an observer of what Europe and Ukraine will do together, I think this will fail. But if we see ourselves as a driver of helping to support the U European aspirations of Ukraine, I think we can get this right. Thank you. As President Obama has said, we are the indispensable nation. I, I would add, you know, it was certainly my sense, in addition to look to Europe, uh, the, other, the other aspiration really was a corruption-free Ukraine, which was, uh, you know, it was kind of a combination of both those elements that created that courage. Uh, Dr. Blank. Thank you, Senator. Uh, I just want to leave the uh, committee with the thought that on March 12, 1947, President Truman stood in the Capitol and said that it was the policy of the United States to support free peoples, and at that time, he was responding to a Soviet challenge in the Black Sea, Greece and Turkey in particular. Uh, that mission hasn't changed. And as Damon has said, if we ought to see a Europe that is whole and free, we must help lead the process. We cannot be disengaged or lead from behind because then we just open up Europe to the ancient horrors that we now see taking over of autocratic, warlike war criminal governments seizing territories at their whim. The people of Ukraine have shed their own blood in order to uh, get their freedom. As, as I mentioned, they have pledged their sacred honor, their fortunes, and their lives, and we can do no less. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Mr. Kasparov. Um, yeah, I think we should uh, 
pay attention to this to the Putin's propaganda machine and that it's it's a fact that that we could see even here in 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 Europe and in the United States many people believe as president Sarkis mentioned that it's an ethnic conflict though uh, over 23 years of existence of independent Ukraine uh, maybe with the exception of Crimea when there was a rock political group that made four percent on the election at the elections uh, Ukraine didn't have any political movement for secession unlike uh, uh, Catalonia or uh, Scotland. Uh, uh, so the, the, those, those are examples that a Russian government wants to bring in, or Kosovo. There was always a movement. So even in Ireland, you had you know, terrorist groups, but also the political wing. So there were political movements demanding the independence. We never heard of the existence of such groups in, in Ukraine. So that's why when, when I read in the Minsk agreement, Minsk 1 or Minsk 2, about the political settlement, I still want to understand who is going to settle on, on, on the opposite side. The, the gangs supported by Putin, because political groups in, in, in eastern Ukraine never created a, a, a core entity that, that specifically asked for, uh, for, for independence. Um, and uh, of course, it's, it's important that is just to, 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 to mention that uh, most of people fighting in East Ukraine, they are Russians on both sides. So there's ethnic Russians. And uh, uh, as Ambassador Pfeiffer mentioned that the term Novorossiya has disappeared completely because Putin realized that his, uh, his grandiose plan of bringing eight, eight Ukrainian regions uh, all the way, uh, all way down from Luhansk to, to, to Odessa to have the corridor to, to both Crimea and Moldova failed because ethnic Russians uh, didn't want to embrace Russian troops. Moreover, he could experience resistance even in Donetsk and Luhansk. So not, not mentioning, you know, further, further uh, south and west to, to, to Dnipropetrovsk or, um, or, or Kharkov. So um, it's, it, it's, it's a war that, you know, that has an aggressor and who is trying to use this ethnic card, but we have to reveal the, 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 uh, the, the true nature of the conflict. And um, uh, Ukrainian nations has been formed, and this is a nation that you know, wants to be in Europe, and it's, it's a multi-ethnic community. Russian has been widely spoken there. If I understand correctly, more channels in Ukraine are, are, are um, using Russian than, than, than Ukrainian, or major TV uh, talk shows in Ukraine that are just that's run uh, uh, by, uh, by journalists who, uh, who um, have Russian as a first language. So it, it, this Putin propaganda machine should be uh, confronted with a strong, a strong message that we're, we're not going to buy these arguments, which unfortunately are you know, uh, still being bought by, by um, Europeans. And sum summarizing this, uh, we talked about you know, the, the, the uh, sanctions and, and about actions of, of um, uh, uh, Western governments vis-a-vis -vis the uh, commercial or, or economic interest of, of, of Putin's Russia. But let's not forget about the damage made by Russian propaganda TV called Russia Today. It's, it, it spreads lies to millions and millions of homes around the world, and it's, it's not a, a normal TV, TV station. It's a, it's, it's a propaganda tool, uh, well-built, you know, well-paid, and uh, uh, as far as I understand, you know, uh, alongside with military and, and, and interior forces, those are protected uh, items in the budget, because Putin knows that he needs this propaganda machine, and we should confront him on this turf as well. Thank you. We have unilaterally disarmed when it comes to providing information and the truth. Uh, President Shaksvili, final thought. Yes, five. yes. Uh, 
Senator, I wanted to thank you for this hearings. Well, we have now live feed to many Ukrainian television channels. It's a country of more than 40 million people, and I think many of them have, will be watching what's being said in the U.S. Uh, Congress and the, this committee. Uh, more than that, I mean, I, in Georgia, it's being watched. In Moldova, it's being watched. There in Georgia, I have a Saakashvili Presidential Library, and they actually after midnight, and I was just told by my assistant there is a full hall of their assembled watching it live on television. And that can tell you that, you know, people coming, showing up at so late at night, watching, trying to watch this together, which, what kind of impact this kind of events have in our part of the world. And, uh, and that's, and this one side of India, there, so the other part of it is that Putin never made secret that he's not after Poroshenko or just after any of us, he's after the United States. He's has said it publicly many times, he's depicted his confrontation as confrontation with the United States. So even if the, some elements in the US would not want to be part of it, but from Putin's point of view, they are, and he's striking at the US interests. So from that standpoint, it's very important that uh, with all the moral support the people have been getting, especially from this building and from your committee and from your personal senator, uh, they now finally get also the ultimate decisions because the, the, those decisions are going to make huge, more, will have besides like very concrete uh, changes on the ground, huge moral boosting effect because in this kind of confrontations, it's very important, I know it from our experience, to know that you are on the right side. So again, thank you, Senator, for being on the right side today together with other members of the committee and thank you for all, the, all your support and you know, uh, uh, your impact and your contribution. Well, again, I, I want to thank all the witnesses for your, your time, your thoughtful testimony, uh, as Dr. Blank said, for telling the truth and for just fighting for freedom. So uh, the record will remain open until the close of business on March 11th, one week from today, for questions for the record. This hearing is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.